So my job this morning was hard enough until I got Darren's text that he was not going to be here. My, my job this morning is to try to explain to you the self-existence of God. And so I thought that I was starting at age 13 to explain the self-existence of God, but now I'm down to age six right, to explain the self-existence of God. Something that anyone would have some difficulty explaining to someone who is 66, much less someone who is six. But here we go. To think about the self-existence of God is to think in terms that are really completely foreign to our understanding. Last week when we introduced our study here on the attributes of God, one of the things that I mentioned there was we start fundamentally at the aspect that God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and, and truth. And so those are a list of some of the attributes. We're going to expound on that list a bit. But the fact that God is spirit, that's something that is so difficult for us to, to comprehend and, and understand. It's not really anything that we have any relation to. And we also have wrong ideas. If you grew up in the 80s and you watch Ghostbusters and it's like, what is a spirit? And, and you start thinking about Casper the ghost and you start thinking about all kinds of weird things that is like, no, that's not right at all. That, that's not what we're talking about. God's not a ghost. God. And how do we understand it? How, how do we explain it? But we're getting into now this other aspect of a fundamental aspect of God that makes God God. This is something that is not true of any other being anywhere in, in the universe. It is true only of God. One of the reasons that this is so difficult to understand is because we are creatures. We live and exist and everything we understand is in the context and the framework of a succession of events. That's really all we know. That, that's where we live. So to illustrate that a little bit, let's try to go back to history class. So how many of you remember in your history class what is most commonly identified as the straw that broke the camel's back to lead to World War One? Anybody remember that? What? The assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. And so that event is like the straw that broke the camel's back that was the cause of this great war. Well, then World War I ended, and then you could trace in history a series of events in Europe, specifically in Germany, to the rise of another man who, Adolf Hitler, and again, you can trace a series of events, a series of causes and effects. Now we have World War II, and, and you understand how history 
unfolds and you understand how one thing leads to another thing. And when one thing happens, there are always ramifications. There are always unintended consequences of actions. And we understand that. That's how we live. I don't want to be real silly, but again, just to try to illustrate and understand this point, um, because the vast majority of us were not, well, none of us were alive uh, at the beginning of World War I. But let me illustrate it this way. Yesterday, we went to a banquet for the fire department, and one of the things that we were served were green beans, right? Green beans. Now, those green beans were planted by somebody, and they used seed that came from green beans that were planted by somebody else, that you seed that were planted by somebody else, that you seed, that you seed, that you seed, that you seed. Eventually, you go all the way back to the third day of creation. And God made beans. And, you know, God made the, the herbs of the field. And so you, those green beans that I ate yesterday, we can trace all the way back to their origin. Now, I'm alive. I have a mom and dad. My mom and dad have a mom and dad. And my mom and dad's mom and dad have, mom, have a mom and dad who have a mom and dad who have a mom and dad. And we can go all the way back with moms and dads until you get to Adam and Eve on the sixth day of creation. And we can understand that sequence of events and we can understand how, how that all traces back to, to the very beginning. Now we come back to my green beans. Not only is it so that somebody planted seed that came from beans that somebody else planted, that somebody else planted, and so on, but those beans that were planted, there was sun that shone on the ground, that warmed the ground. There were clouds in the sky that dispensed rain, that watered the earth, and the bean sprouted. And all that happened, and we can trace that directly to the hand of God. God is the one who sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God is the one who has promised that the cycles of the seasons will continue without end. And there's a sun, and there's a moon, and there's night, and there's day, and there's springtime and harvest. And God has promised all these things. And we can trace all that, and we can understand how these series of events always happen. Now, how many of you children, raise your hand, no joke, raise your hand, don't be embarrassed. How many of you, well, let's not, let's not limit this to children. How many of you in your life have ever asked the question out loud to your mom and dad, your pastor, somebody, where did God come from? Have you ever asked that question? Where did God come from? I know where I came from. I came from Larry and Monique Bowman. That's where I came from. And you know where you came from. You know your mommy and your daddy. You trace your family tree. I know where I came from. But you see, to ask that question, it's not silly. It's not stupid. It just shows that you're a human being. It shows that you understand how things work. 
because things come from things. There is a succession, a succession of events that happen that produces things. And we get that. We understand that. And so we ask this natural question, where did God come from? Well, this is the difficulty. And this is why this is so difficult to explain. Because the answer is, God did not come at all. He didn't come from anything. The truth about God is that there was never an event that caused him. He never came into existence. There was never a time that he was not, and then he was. Now, I don't get it, because there was a time that I was not. Lydia and I distinctly remember a time when Nolan was not. Right? Nolan did not exist. And then, poof, stork landed on the front porch with a basket, and there was Nolan. And we decided to keep him and not send him back. But there was never a time that God did not exist. Now, there will be a time that I won't be here. I'll be gone. But yet with God, there's no time that he won't exist. God is what we call self-existent. And so when we talk about God, we really always have to talk about him in the present tense in the sense that when we say that God exists, we say that God simply is. God is. Now, here's a big fancy theological word for you. I've been talking about the self-existence of God. What we're really talking about in theological terms is what we call the aseity of God. The aseity of God. And so, we're on page two of our notes now. We'll go to definition. So what are we talking about? What is the aseity of God? What does this teach us? What's the point of this? Who cares? The aseity of God teaches us God's absolute self-existence and self-sufficiency. And so what we mean by that is that God has life in himself. Where do we get life from? The Bible tells us the life is in the blood. Okay, the life is in the blood. And so I have to have blood in order for me to have life. I'm not a doctor. I have to have oxygen? Yeah, okay. I have to have oxygen to have life. And so my life, your life, comes from something. If I have no blood, if I have no oxygen, I have no life. Well, God doesn't need anything to give him life. He has life in himself. God exists by himself, and he exists from himself. I had a creator, God in the ultimate sense of, of creator, but my mommy and my daddy created me in, in, in that sense of, of the term. But God had no one who made him. He had no one who created him. 
nothing was or is his father. He does not depend on anything to exist. So you bring a little baby into the world, and that, that newborn is born, and if you just laid that baby on a table, that baby has blood and that baby has oxygen, but that baby will die. Because that baby needs help. It needs someone, a parent, a guardian, a nurse, somebody. It needs something to care for it. Because as a, a newborn, it cannot care for itself. It doesn't have the ability to do what it needs to stay alive. It can't feed itself. It, it can't shelter itself. It can't take care of itself. It needs something. God needs nothing. God does not depend on anything or anyone to exist. He is the only entirely independent being. What we also mean by this is that God is not affected by anything outside of himself. Now, we had, you all know a long time ago, we had a tree fall on our house. Well, in the process of tree falling on our house, we also had a tree that fell across over into the neighbor's yard. And while the bad event happened to us, to my family, there was also the tree that fell into my neighbor's yard that had adverse effects on their house because it not only tore the, the power extension line down from our house, but it also tore it down from their house. And so an event that happened to me affected my neighbor directly. Well, nothing that happens affects God. God is not affected by anything. We never benefit him, and we never take away from him. We never add to him, we never subtract to him, subtract from him. He is completely self-sufficient. And so further, what that means is that anything and everything that God does springs only from his sovereign will. God never is reactionary. God does not react to events, right? Like us, there, there's times that we wait to see what's going to happen. And we might think ahead, and if that person does this, then I'm going to do that. If this person does the other thing, well, then I'm going to do this thing. And I'm going to, I can't do anything yet. I have to wait, and I react to what that person does. God doesn't react. Now, remember last week, we used some other big fancy words, anthropomorphisms, remember? Anthropopathisms. Those big words? Well, we read in the Bible sometimes situations where it seems as if God is reacting. So let's take the flood. Right? God saw that the wickedness of man was evil continually, etc. The whole creation had gone south. What do I do? Okay, I'm going to kill them all. I'll save Noah. And, and you would read that, and it's not unreasonable, just on the surface, to come to this conclusion that 
things kind of got out of control. And God scrambled, reacted. Okay, I'll pick Noah, because I've got to have people after this. So pick Noah. Okay, we'll do this ark thing and the flood, right? And, and that's how I'll take care of it. That's, it even sounds blasphemous to talk that way, right? God is not reacting to the events of history. Now, how else can he communicate to us than in those terms? This is the anthropomorphic way that God communicates to us. He has to communicate to us in ways that we can understand. And all we understand is a progression of events. And that's how we, we unfold. And, and this obviously causes some consternation in, in interpreting some scriptures because it seems as if God is reaction. Not the case at all. God does not react. God needs nothing from man, nor are we able in any way whatsoever to enrich him or diminish him. So, let's look at a few scripture proofs here. Turn up Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. We'll look at this one first. So, does anybody in Mr. Bogus's class know the context? What in the world is happening in Exodus chapter 3? Does anybody know chapter content? Exodus chapter 3? Does anybody in the youth group know what happens in Exodus chapter 3? Anybody? Machen. The burning bush. Who's at the burning bush? Moses. Why is Moses at the burning bush? God's giving, who said that? God's giving him directions, right? So Moses has killed a man in Egypt. He sees the, Egypt, or he sees the Egyptian bondage, and he sees the Israelites, these are my people, and, and he sees the affliction that they're under. Moses is confused. He is a follower of the Lord. He flees to the other side of the desert. And now he comes to this, this place. God tells him to take his shoes off. He's standing on holy ground. So here we are. Exodus 3, look at verse 3. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt. Moses says, I'm a nobody. I'm not important. I'm not going to get any traction if I go back. I, I can't lead these people. They're not going to follow me. And verse 12, God said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth thy people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And so here's God's assurance to Moses. Moses, here's how you're going to know beyond any shadow of a doubt. It's not going to be long. You're going to be right back here in this place with all those people worshiping me. And remember, I did it all. Verse 13, And Moses said to God, Behold, when I... Come when I, when I go back to Egypt unto the children of Israel and say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. And they 
shall say to me, what's his name? What am I going to tell him? Who am I going to tell the children of Israel has sent me? And so here's where God answers that question. Verse 14, and God said to Moses, I am that I am. And God said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said moreover unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. And so, in that verse 14, God gave Moses his name. Now, here we are. We're in Genesis, or I'm sorry, we're in Exodus. And we've already been, theoretically at this point, you've read the whole book of Genesis. And God has already revealed himself to Adam, to Enoch, to Noah, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so how is this that, like, I don't even know what your name is. Well, no, of course we know what God's name is, right? We know what God's name is, right? God. It's, what's the other word? So Elohim, that's a word. Jehovah, right? It's Jehovah. And so, where do we get Jehovah? We won't deal with the Elohim. We'll save that for another Sunday school lesson. Um, that's a more confusing thing. Where do we get this Jehovah? Well, verse 14, God said unto Moses, I am that I am. Now, the word that that you have in your King James Bible, that's you know, still in all capital letters there, there is a Hebrew word that is reflected there. The Hebrew word, more often than not, it's used over a thousand times in the Old Testament. That Hebrew word is a word that is translated as who or which. It is also a word that in many, many instances where it occurs is completely legitimate in the translation just to leave it untranslated. It's not right to say it's a word that doesn't matter, but go with it. It's a word that doesn't need to be translated necessarily in all of its context. Anyway, what God said to Moses is, I am, I am. Now, what we have there, I am, is actually the Hebrew verb to be. To be, to exist. I am. So, if I were standing at that bush and Moses said to me, who am I talking to? I would respond to Moses and I would say, I am Derek Bowman. That's how I would respond. I am Derek Bowman. God responded with a verb and a name. God responded, I am, I am. That's my name, I am. 
I am, I am. And so we finish the verse, thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am, hath sent me into So that, that second time, or the third time you see I am, but there at the end of the verse where the I am is just all by itself, that's God's name. I am. That's where we get uh, Jehovah. I'll do a timeout here and do the Elohim thing. So the Masoretes, um, the Old Testament is referred to as the Masoretic text. The Masoretes, they were the editors, they were the, the keepers of the Hebrew Bible, if you will. They had a tradition that they never, the, the Hebrews, to the, they never said the name of God. This was a superstitious thing. They didn't say God's name. And so, in order to not say God's name, they put the consonants for to be, I am, right here, Y-H-Y-H, okay, whatever, Y-H-Y-H. They put the consonants. Now, in Hebrew, you have consonants, and the vowels are not letters like we think of letters. The, cons the vowels are little dots or little tiny marks either inside or underneath the letters. And so what they would do is they would take the consonants for the word to be, they would take the vowels from the word Lord, Adonai, they would take those vowels and put those vowels on the verb to be. And so that's where often you get the pronunciation Elohim from the way those vowels, I'm sorry, no, not Elohim, Yahweh. That's how you get Yahweh sometimes in the pronunciation. But then you also get Jehovah. That's very confusing. Let me give you another thing. If you ever go and read highfalutin commentaries, uh, what, what we would consider technical academic commentaries. This is just something you can kind of keep in your back pocket for when you do study and research for scripture. Or if you're reading a book, you don't know the author, you don't know where this guy's coming from, you look at like, okay, he's a professor at such and such a seminary, never heard of it. You don't really know who you're dealing with. This is a very general rule of thumb. It's not watertight, but very general rule of thumb. If you're reading a book and they're consistently referring to God as Elohim, you can pretty much be sure you're reading a liberal. If they're consistently referring to God as Jehovah, you're more than likely dealing with someone who is on the conservative side of the spectrum. If they consistently use Elohim, probably liberal, probably critical to the scriptures. But that's just by the way. Okay, Tom back in. I am. That's God's name. I am. So what does this mean? Let me read you from Matthew Henry, what Matthew Henry says about this. He, he puts things down pretty accessible for us to understand. This is what he says. This signifies the real being of God, his self-existence, and that he is the being of beings as also it denotes his eternity and immutability. What's immutability mean? 
unchangeableness, okay? So his eternity is unchangeableness and his constancy and faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. For it includes all time, past, present, and to come. And the sense is, not only I am what I am at present, but I am what I have been, and I am what I shall be, and shall be what I am. Put all that together, God is saying, I am. God is. It's, we can't say God was. We can't say that God will be. God is. God does not deal in the aspect of time. This is something that we'll scramble our brains with when we get to the fact that God is eternal. We'll try to figure that out. But God is outside of time. God is. God, God wasn't. God won't be. God is. He is the constant now. So let's move on to another scripture proof here. Job 22, 2-4. So the context here. In Job, it's always important to understand who is talking. Because Job has three friends. You remember their name? Bildad, Eliphaz, Zophar. Bildad, Eliphaz, and, and Zophar. Job 22, Eliphaz is speaking. Now, here's one of the things that we deal with when we deal with Job's three friends. They're completely up the creek in their assessment of what's wrong with Job. But they're not up the creek theologically. This is, this is the thing we have to understand in, in, in working through the book of Job. They, they've pegged Job wrong. Right? They know at a fundamental level God punishes sin. Their syllogism is off. Right? God punishes sin. Job's being punished. Job's being punished because of his sin. Right? The syllogism is perfect, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong with the syllogism. It just didn't apply to Job, right? That's, Job was not being punished because of his sin. And so they're out to lunch when it comes to their assessment of what's wrong with Job. But we, we back off from that and we read their statements. We, we, we analyze the theological truth that they're presenting and we're like, yeah, you're right. That is right. It's just not what's going on with Job. Right? So, so we have to understand that. But let's, let's read what's, what has happened here. So Eliphaz is speaking. He's wrong in his assessment of Job. But he's right in his theology. And so here's what he asks. Job 22, verse 2. Can a man be profitable unto God? as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself. Can a man be profitable unto God? So can a man enrich God? Can a man do something for God? Or, or can it, a man do something in general? And God be benefited by that? And the answer is no. 
is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Right? So he's, he's talking to Job. Is there any pleasure to the Almighty that thou art righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? So what Eliphaz is accusing Job of here, Job is, is saying, I'm not, I'm not being punished because of my sin. That's not the thing. And Job has some complaints of the, the situation that he's going through. And here Eliphaz is asking these rhetorical questions, but they make this theological point that you're not going to benefit God by your righteousness. You try as hard as you can to please God, and God is not made better by your efforts. God can't be profited by you in any way. And that simply is the point of explaining and emphasizing the self-existence of God. Another one, John 5.26. We'll have to finish up on these verses here. John 5.26. Here we have just a blanket statement. The Father hath life in himself. And so there we just have a direct statement of Scripture. The Father hath life in himself. So hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. And so we're not dealing with the Trinity right now, but speaking of, of Christ, Christ also has life in himself. The Holy Spirit has life in himself. So let's make sure we understand this to be true, just kind of as a, a blanket general statement across the board. When we talk about the attributes of God, we're not talking about only God the Father. We're dealing with the attributes of the Godhead. We're, what is true of God the Father is true of God the Son is true of God the Holy Spirit. And so we do this, we talk about this when we do that catechism question, what is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. So God the Father is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Christ is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. The Holy Spirit is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. All of them are those three things in their being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. They're, they're all three persons of the God here head are of that nature. Self-existent. Self-sufficient. One last one. Uh, Acts 17. And this is... Uh, Paul on Mars Hill, and remember he is speaking to these skeptics, uh, people that think Paul is some country bumpkin, the Greek word that they use to refer to Paul is literally translated as seed picker, they, they call Paul a seed picker meaning that Paul has just kind of made up all these, this hodgepodge of philosophical thoughts, and he's come to Athens to try to make a name for himself. And they think he's crazy. Well, Paul is responding, and he, he preaches to these people. And so he identifies God as the creator of all things. Acts 17, verse 24. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with men's hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, 
seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. And so you have to understand something of the context there that Paul is dealing with, with these superstitious religious people in Athens. They worship gods who needed them. Their gods needed their help. Their gods needed their sacrifices. Their gods needed their upkeep, everything. Right? You, you go back to the Old Testament, you remember the, the crazy story of Dagon. Right? Dagon, the, this idol, it had fallen over. And it keeps falling over. So what did the worshipers of Dagon do? You remember? Yeah, they stood him back up and they put a stick to prop him up so he wouldn't fall over anymore. What kind of God is that? Can't even stand himself up. Right? It's ridiculous. But th this is what they worshipped. And this was their thought process. They had to help their gods. Well, Paul is flying right in the face of that. Paul is saying, I'm not preaching to you a God that has been created, a God who has been dreamed up by man. No, instead, it's the exact opposite. I'm talking to you about the God that you don't even, you have a, an altar to this unnamed God. I'm telling you who he is. He's the one who's made all things. He's the creator of all things. He doesn't live in a temple. He doesn't dwell in things that you have fashioned to help him, to hold him, as though he needs anything. God doesn't need anything. And that's the whole point that Paul is, is making there. And so those are just a few. I mean, we could go for a long time on different scripture proofs for the self-existence of God. We'll stop here. Um, keep your notes in your Bible. Bring them back next week. We'll get to some application here because the application of this is what it is really important and beneficial for us. The fact that God needs nothing, but we as creatures depend on him for everything. He is the source of all that we have, the source of all that we need. And so when we, we take the application of God being self-existent, the self-sufficiency of God, and begin to apply that to ourselves, it becomes very, very helpful. So keep your notes. We'll finish this out. Lord willing, uh, next week. Well, let's close in prayer now and prepare for the service here. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for your greatness and your power. And even as we were considering last week and some of the introductory comments about the, your attributes, we're amazed to think of that passage of scripture that says, though you be high, yet hath you respect unto the lowly. And we do thank you that in grace and in mercy, though you need nothing, you have by your own sovereign good pleasure chosen to reveal yourself to us. We pray that you would help us to pay attention to what you have for us today in your word. We pray for Pastor Kimber as he preaches that you would fill him with your spirit for what we need to hear. Bless our singing, bless the reading of scripture, our praying together. All these things we ask that they would be for your honor, for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name.